Welcome to On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today we will be talking to Don Heatrick as part of our series on strength and conditioning. As always, if you'd like to reach me, you can follow me on Instagram, Matt Lucas Muay Thai, or email me at a.matt.lucas at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone that has supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be super helpful. You can do so on the iTunes store. The interview with Don is super interesting. He has a lot to say. Really, his big focus is on building the neuromuscular system, uh, building strength, power, and speed. He has some great programs that we talk about and different ways of building the body and developing strength and conditioning. Uh, one of the things that he's seen so much success with in his own personal career and the career of his fighters that he's helped is the strength and conditioning. So without further ado, the interview with Don Heatrick. Um, so <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we've we've just had a a nice little uptick in the weather here in the UK, so I'm I'm feeling a bit brighter again now. We've had some storms and things, but now it's there's a bit of sun. I know that's something you're probably a bit more accustomed to where you, yeah. where you are, but yeah, we we kind of grab that stuff when it's here in the UK. Yeah, it's I haven't ever been to the UK, but it seems gloomy and doomy like all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> the majority of the time, you know, yeah. it's why we're all obsessed with the weather here because it's when we do get some sun, it's it, it lifts the mood. Yeah, mm. so I'm feeling that today. That's good. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Don. How are you doing? I'm I'm very well, Matt. And uh, thanks for thanks for having having me on your podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, no worries. You've been around for ages, um, so it's good to finally connect. For those of you, for those of there out there that don't know you, can you give a little bit of your background, uh, particularly in the sports science department? I know you used to be an engineer, then you shifted more into sports science after uh, Muay Thai career. But can you talk more about the strength and conditioning side and a bit more about the sports science? Yeah, so, yeah, historically... I kind of had a, I left school and um, I was good at science and it it lended, my aptitude sort of lended itself to engineering. I was really interested in that, the problem solving, all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't feel like I could have a, a career at the time when, you know, when I left school um, in in sports. It, in the UK, it was kind of like, you, you're going to be like a, a, a football player, like a soccer. Um, and it, that that kind of wasn't something I was really into. I was always into contact sports. Mm -hmm. So I had a, I had a, like a, a parallel life, if you like, where I, I was doing contact sports, which at the time was um, American football, as we'd call it here in the UK. Obviously in the States, it's just football. But that, that background, the, the contact sports there also had a strength and conditioning element to it. And I found that absolutely fascinating. I was really really eager to find out how it wasn't just the sports skill side of it there was the the engine side of it the the kind of the body and the performance side of the puzzle as well and how you could maximize both and having that as a background um just just fueled that interest really in the sports science and i was interested not only in the sports science but the the uh nutrition if you like all all of the aspects that went together to to make a an athlete of any kind. And what happened was as I was studying engineering at the same time, um, I started doing martial arts training, full contact. So I, I kind of went through uh, Kyokushin karate. That was the only thing that, that was available to me. I loved that, but they, they weren't doing any punches to the head. So I was like, this doesn't, doesn't feel very realistic. There wasn't any Muay Thai around, um, but there was some full contact kickboxing groups. I joined those in my local area really got into that, but it was Muay Thai that I wanted to do. Seeing all the elbows and knees and the clinch, the full repertoire there, um, that was what I was uh, really wanting to get into. And it, it took a while in my local area for anyone to start teaching that. But as soon as it opened up, I was straight in there and doing that. And then applying everything that I'd, I'd been doing as supplemental training now 
to Muay Thai rather than uh, either American football or any any other sort of sports that I'd been doing. And I'd, I'd been reaping the rewards of that, really, not being as technically good as a lot of the people around me. I found that the the uh, the conditioning side of it, the the athletic performance side of it gave me a big advantage and it it made up for for the shortcomings I had in terms of skill because I hadn't been training as long as other people. And of course, just realized that there was this opportunity really to use both of these avenues, not just the skill training, but also really getting the body optimized for Muay Thai as well and how that could that could help you win fights. And I was kind of doing all of that in parallel to studying to, to be a mechanical design engineer and ended up doing that for 18 years. But all the time in parallel, I was training and competing in Muay Thai. Um, and I, I just found that the the sports science side of training, so planning training, was something that um, there's, there's a lot of structuring to that and a lot of thought processes behind what you do and when, what's important and when it's not important. And actually designing training effectively was what I what I saw the strength and conditioning side of the puzzle being. And uh, that ultimately led me to to feel that I, I, I wanted to go all in on, on that side of it because I could see it wasn't really being done that well in, in Muay Thai in, in particular with that sort of traditional emphasis from Thailand. There were a lot of gaps being missed, a lot of great stuff being done, but there were, there were opportunities that were being missed that could uh, really make the, the fighters better fighting athletes. And eventually I just decided that um, I'm actually going to jack in my 18-year career as an engineer and I'm going to go all in and try and make a difference in Muay Thai. And that's, that's what I did back in, that was around 2008, I think it was, that I actually decided, right, let's have a go at this and just, just see if I can make any, any difference at all. And since uh, 2008, which is, what, about 14 years now? It's quite mm. some time. It's rolled on now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what sort of what sort of accomplishments have you achieved, and what sort of tr- changes have you seen from being involved on the strength and conditioning side? Yeah, well, I think initially um, it it took me a while to start sharing anything online. I guess thinking back now, the social media side of things, you know, in two thousand eight, it was really, really that was in in its infancy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was blog sites and things like that. And it took me until I think it was 2012 to actually start putting anything online. All I'd been doing is training myself, training the fighters I'd worked with. Um, I'd actually set up my own full-time gym by then as well. Um, and uh, I'd just been kind of doing that in person and not really worried about changing too much worldwide, if you like. But then I thought, you know, there was just so much stuff that was... There was um, the, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, the Axe Forum yeah. used to be on the internet there. That would yeah. be around 2008, oh, maybe a little earlier, correct? Yeah, it was a bit but a bit earlier, but it kind of spanned over that period. And that, mm-hmm. that felt like it was the main hub for fighters online. And it was fighters of all levels. You know, it was mm-hmm. people that weren't really competing at all. And, you know, top end fighters. I mean, the likes of Liam Harrison and everyone, everyone were always in there. Um, and I started publishing a few things on on a blog site just to share some ideas that were different to what people were doing with traditional Muay Thai training to fill some gaps. Um, and I shared a few of them on the Axe Forum as well. And I was knowing how some of, some of the folks were there on that forum. I was like, I'm fully expecting to, to have a lot of kind of uh, trouble back here that there's like, what are you talking about? That's not how they do it in Thailand. Um, but it didn't. Um, I just ended up with more questions and I thought, okay, that people are more receptive to this, even though it, it could be seen as conflicting with the information you'd get from Thailand. Um, but that's not really how I saw it at all. It was more like we need to focus attention to certain areas of training at certain stages of a, of a training camp or a fight camp, if you like. Um, and it's, it's more about dialing things up or down, depending on where you are with respect to a fight, but also, um, bringing in some tools that, weren't currently being used in Thailand. And uh, yeah, I just end up with more questions than I did people kind of slagging me off, if you like. Um, and that gave me the confidence, really, because people were responding to to what I what I'd suggested, gave it a try and were finding it was helping. Um, and it just allowed me to to push that a bit further and just really discovered that online, of course, there's a, a greater community out there. People are passionate about Muay Thai to the same sort of level. 
Whereas in my local area, there's only so many people even want to do Muay Thai, let alone take it to the, to the, to the extent that I was looking to push it. So you said a bunch of really interesting things that I think we should touch on. Uh, one was in by 2012, you were working a full-time gym and working mm. with fighters. Uh, so you obviously have 14 plus years of strength and conditioning work specifically with fighters. Uh, that is something I want to talk about uh, and a couple other things, but we'll get to them after that. Uh, so in working with the fighters, what, how has that been like and how have your uh, different training routines been put together and how have they evolved over, you know, the decade and a half of experience you have? Yeah. So working with fighters is interesting. Um, <laughs> being, being one myself, I know how kind of, well, mentally flighty we are, to be honest, mm -hmm. we're, we're looking for the, we want that big buzz, that big push. Um, and actually keeping fighters training in with the right intensity, with the right rest intervals in the supplemental training and not just turning it all into Muay Thai training again is quite tricky. So it's a case of um, more rest when you're when you're developing some of the the characteristics we're looking to build outside of Muay Thai training. Because the, the way I look at it is is this that there are there are certain athletic qualities that will be developed adequately by just doing Muay Thai training. And we shouldn't touch those in the supplemental training. It's like, just do more Muay Thai if that's going to build those. So we're looking to where, where are the gaps? And it's, it's the, the neuromuscular stuff. So it's, the, it's strength, it's power, it's speed. And to a certain extent, some of the endurance stuff, it depends on how the, how the, uh, the training's been structured. But the, the, the neuromuscular stuff, the strength, power and speed, it really isn't touched to any great extent in Muay Thai training. And that's the bit that people are missing out on to the greatest extent. So to develop those, you need quite large rest intervals mm -hmm. and fighters don't like to take rest intervals. They're like onto the next, they want to try and make it feel more like pad work or bag work again, where it's just go, go, go. But if you, if you slip into that default again, you're starting to make the training more like Muay Thai. And it's like, well, if you want that kind of training, you should be just doing Muay Thai because you're getting your skill training built up at the same time there. So, it was a case of short, sharp, explosive work, lots of rest, background and loop again. So the, the way I've always approached it is for fighters, it's no good just saying you're doing, for example, with strength, a sort of classic three sets of five heavy reps would be something that develops strength. And you need to allow about typically three to five minutes before you'd repeat a set to allow enough recovery for that to be productive again and to build real strength and not just become fatigued and become more strength endurance. Um, but for fighters, of course, you know, that's, you can't have fighters sat around for three minutes between sets and, and to be honest, nobody really wants to do that. So the, the approach I've used is to, the term is superset exercises. So you put mm -hmm. some back to back, but you've got to make sure that they're non-competing so that one doesn't fatigue the other and vice mm -hmm. versa. And the, the way I've typically managed that is to do, uh, one exercise followed by another, which would be a main exercise, for example, like a strength exercise. Size. So, for example, it could be like a deadlift with then like a, an upper body push such as an overhead press. And you could work both of those really hard. And then I'd have uh, an active rest activity, which would typically be something like uh, mobility to really start working on some of the things that are also missing from a, from a fighter's sort of movement patterns and, and tidy those up. By the time you've finished your first exercise, which would be the deadlift, if you, if you were to start a stopwatch, and then work through then your overhead presses, then do your mobility exercises, then potentially just wait a minute, maybe even less. It would be sort of a good two to three minutes before you'd start repeating that deadlift again mm -hmm. and everything's good to go. So mm -hmm. you're never stuck just twiddling your thumbs. You're working on something productive, something productive, something productive, go again. And then once you've done that looped round, however many sets you've got in your program, you'd then move on to the next, the next super set, which would, uh, which would actually be challenging a, a different part of the program, um, a, a different aspect of the, of the athletic qualities. And the order of those in a, in a session as well are, are important. Mm -hmm. uh, so you said specifically that you feel traditional Muay Thai training doesn't hit on the neuromuscular stuff, the strength, the power, and the mm. speed. What, how can we see the results of a strength and conditioning program in those areas, how, 
when do we see more strength, power, and speed? You know, naturally, some athletes are going to be more powerful than others. Uh, do we see that come out in some way? What sort of, yeah, what sort of ways does strength and conditioning help this specifically? How can you tell, you know, in detail, okay, this superset is improving, you know, this, my strength in my punches or the power in my kicks or the speed of my knees? Yes. Yeah. So that there are always individual differences. Everyone's going to have that spectrum, just like you've got fighters that have, have got vastly different styles of fighting based on their physical attributes, um, what, what their height and weight and all this kind of stuff is. And, it, and it's, you'll see exactly the same when you do like a performance profile with a fighter where you're, you're measuring what their strength, power and speed levels are, what their endurance is, all this kind of stuff. You see all these sort of dials, if you like, are at different levels. Um, and it's a it's a case of um, fighting in a way that matches what you've got, what your attribute, attributes are. Um, but in terms of you, you can always, wherever you are, you've got like a, a genetic limit, if you like, in these different qualities. And some people have higher limits than others, but it doesn't mean you can't move the dial for you personally. And having more of all of or any of that stuff can only help um, in your in your Muay Thai performance. So we're always looking to kind of change that. Um, the, the point I wanted to get across really as well is that although in training we're looking to develop maximal strength, maximal power, maximal speed, you never get to display that in a fight because it's always under fatigue. There's always a, there's an endurance element to it. But if, if I was to give you an example, so although strength is a different quality, for example, to endurance, um, it can appear as endurance. So if if um, I have you doing a, a chin up, and you can only you're only strong enough to really to lift your body weight, however much you weigh, once or twice, it's going to make your endurance look terrible. Whereas if I've built your strength up, so you, you can do like three reps with half your body weight hanging from you, dangling from a belt, and you can you can do that. We take that weight off of you. You can knock out sort of 15, 20 reps on a chin up, really good form, and it makes your endurance look awesome but it's it's actually that's a product of your strength rather than your endurance because each repetition is a smaller percentage of your real true maximum so that's the way that's a, an example of how um and 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 of course chin-ups you know clinch strength it, that's a, a direct carryover so you'll find someone who gets stronger in a chin-up for example will suddenly find uh, assuming their skill is up to par as well they'll have a much better time in the clinch where they're not getting fatigued because they can apply now 80% of their true maximum strength to their opponent. And they could be really struggling to handle that now because they're so much stronger, but 80% of your maximum strength applied all the fight isn't going to fatigue you. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, if it was your hundred percent maximum, you're, you're spent, you know, you, you play it in one exchange and you're like that. I'm gone now. So we're always that sort of, that 80% is is really what I'm looking to do. So in a fight, most of the time we're looking to only deliver 80% of what your true maximum is. But in training, we want to build the 100% maximum up so that your 80% is equivalent to your opponent's 100%. And then you can drown them because they can't keep up, whereas you can keep it up all day. And that 80% is because you're under pressure, you're under fatigue. Uh, so it's mm. hard to get that 100%. But the sort of idea is you're dialing up so that your 80%, like you said, is more than someone else's 100%, correct? Yeah, that's and then it. That's also, it. Uh, it, it was interesting that you said, you know, there, something like strength will be shown in endurance, uh, which mm -hmm. I think is very interesting because I feel like most people watching fights are looking more at endurance. Uh, and how strong and posed the fighter looks, uh, which comes out more as an idea of endurance rather than having strength. Would yes. you agree with that? Yes, definitely. And and the strength, what we want to look at, there, there's like an a optimal performance pyramid. Uh, a mm -hmm. guy called Gray Cook come up with it. It's really, really nice way to look at things. You kind of have a foundation that you need to stack on top of. So it starts with movement and mobility on the bottom. You need enough of that to be able to deliver whatever you're trying to do. On top of that then goes performance quality. So that's strength, power, and endurance. 
And then on top of that, which gets smaller still, is the skill element. And that's obviously Muay Thai for us. But there's a lot of people that don't have that pyramid with a nice wide base going up to a tapered point at the top. They kind of overemphasize the skill and they don't have the qualities underneath that underpin delivering all of that. So yeah, strength, strength is something that you'll see come out as endurance, but you'll also see it in terms of um, if it's trained well, not just, for example, on two limbs, if you're doing it unilaterally on one arm or one leg, it comes out as stability and balance as well and better control there. It also, it'll come out as um, injury reduction. So you're less likely to get injured because everything's much more within your capacity. Um, I have another little analogy. I'm not sure if I've posted this one. This, this would be a useful one as a visual. If you imagine that you've got another triangle here. So the base of the triangle on the bottom is the number of different ways you can tolerate a load. So in the center of the triangle would be something like two limbs together. Um, so a bilateral squat. So just squatting with load on, on your back. Then as you get out wider on the base of the triangle, it would be more unilateral single limb. So lateral squats, lunges, all this kind of stuff. It's your body tolerating the load, but in different ways with less stability. But then the peak of the triangle is how much load you can actually handle. So how strong you are. And as long as the way you're trying to perform sits within that triangle, the different number of ways that you lift a load, whether it's two legs, one leg, all these different directions, and the maximum load that you can tolerate, you're, you're much, much less likely to get injured. It's when the load is higher than you can typically tolerate in any of those different variations, that's when people break, break down, get injured, all this kind of stuff. So the wider we can make the base in supplemental training and the taller we can make the triangle in terms of the load you can handle doing those, the much more injury proof that that fight is going to be. Interesting. And something that we talked about uh, earlier is dialing things up and down during portions of fight camps or portions of your career. Can you talk about that and maybe give some specific examples of when people should be dialing things up and down? Yeah. Yeah. So th this is another thing with fighters. It's, it's one of the things that I found fascinating with strength and conditioning for combat sports um, and Muay Thai obviously being my passion, but it's fighters need everything. <laughs> you know, you kind of look at, it, it's not like, oh, I'm a marathon runner, runner, I just need endurance or I'm a sprinter. I just need to be explosive. It's like, no, you need all of that. And, and you need great mobility and you need the tactical side of it. And there's, there's just so much to it. And it does make it confusing at first, but the way to kind of break it down, I, I actually, um, for fighters advocate, uh, concurrent training, uh, method. All that means is that you are training strength, power and speed and a, and the element of endurance all the time. But it's just the dials, like we say, it's how, how much, how strong is the mix for strength compared to power and speed, even though we've still got our toe in those as well. And we just change that emphasis as you, as you get closer to a fight. So further from a fight, then the emphasis should be on strength with uh, a maintenance level of power and speed development. So strength lifts to, to give everyone an idea of that would be like they're typically the heavy bilateral lifts. So it'd be squats and deadlifts, bench presses, overhead presses, chin ups, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, rowing actions, but also for the core, it'd be sort of anti-rotation, anti-extension exercises. So it's, it's stuff like, um, barbell rollouts or landmine twists, all this kind of stuff that makes the, the core really strong. And then the power elements. Those exercises are more the explosive jumps with a bit of weight on you. So um, either just a, like a loaded jump squat or right through to some of the Olympic lifting variants and, and things like that. Kettle, heavy kettlebell swings, all that stuff where there's a load on you, but you're still exploding with some sort of velocity. And then the speed training is plyometric training effectively. So there's no external load. It's body weight only. It's the fastest you can move. So we're looking to, to develop the highest velocity possible which means no external load, but it also means adequate rests so that you can deliver that. And that's stuff like um, box jumps, but then progressing onto hurdles, all these kind of things, and med ball throws as well for the core. Um, that stuff all develops the highest velocity element of the, of the athletic qualities. And it's just the dial on that that we, that, we, that we shift around through. So the emphasis, say further from fight, is strength with maintenance, power, and speed. Then in, in that order, 
as you get closer to the fight, midway, we're looking to emphasize explosive power. So there's maintenance strength and maintenance speed. And then finally, closest to the fight, we want to be the most uh, sports-specific, and that's highest velocity, lowest weight. So that's all speed emphasis. So it's more about the plyometrics, that kind of work, and the med ball throws. And there's maintenance strength, and there's maintenance power work in there, just to make sure those plates aren't wobbling and dropping off. We want to keep them all going, but we want to emphasize certain certain plates, if you like, closer to, to the fight. And the more sport-specific they are, that's that's the emphasis. Um, something else that I wanted to hit on was you mentioned tools not used necessarily in Thailand. Obviously, times are changing, and that's something you've mentioned before in your podcast. Uh, but mm. what tools do you see heavily used in the UK and in Europe that might not necessarily be used out here? I mean, you don't need much, to be honest, in terms to, to work uh, an elite level strength and conditioning program. It is just basic barbells. It's a squat rack. It's dumbbells, kettlebells, these kind of tools, uh, the, the weight bench. That's that's all you really need. Saying that, it's still relatively expensive to get that, although it's basic stuff. And I think in Thailand, there is the investment in that. And there's also the space that that takes up. So most gyms are kind of looking at, do we even know how to use this stuff properly? Because the tools are one thing, but it's then applying those tools correctly. And if you're not really sure how you can use those to make better fighters and not just end up with kind of like bodybuilders, people going in there, just getting bigger and slower, um, you've got to use it in an athletic way. So I think that's that's probably the big difference. It's the investment in the kit. It's the investment in space to, to utilize that kind of area. It's the education really to use that kit properly. And I think that's that's where a lot of gyms in the West have got an advantage on that side of things um, because they have got access to this stuff um, in terms of the equipment and, and the expertise as well a bit more readily. Um, and that's that's what's shifting and what's changing. And we're starting to see more more of the bigger fighters, I guess, in in Muay Thai now starting to have access to this kind of uh, training and this kind of expertise um, and things like the one championship kind of showcasing some of the behind the scenes stuff as well um, it is helping helping fighters kind of see oh it's not it's not just something Westerners do it's some something that the, the elite ties now are starting to investigate and exploit as well. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. One of the reasons why I think a lot of gyms aren't necessarily invested in it is because it's risky uh, in terms of, okay, we can try this new program on a fighter, but we don't necessarily know the results. And if mm. we, there's money on the line, it's like, you know, yeah. why should we have the racehorse, you know, run along the beach when we should have them run on the track? All the horses run on the track. You know, and yeah. they're looking just to get the fastest horse. And traditionally, they've just had the horses run on the track. You know, I don't know anything about horse racing, of course. And I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, going on the beach with the horses is going to make an excellent uh, racing horse. But the comparison, I think, is there. Um, do you feel like, you know, do you feel like more you mentioned it a little with the one championship, but do you feel like more Westerners are showing their strength and conditioning? And what, like, how long do you need to show the system for it to produce results? Because, you know, a lot of fighters will come over with decent strength and conditioning programs, but will only stay for a month or two, which mm. in my opinion is not long enough for a Thai camp to be convinced uh, because yes. they have a decade or more of experience with this specific style or training program that they know works. So, yeah. you know, if someone is coming in for a month or two and being like, oh, you know, let's take long walks on the beach, you know, it helps mm -hmm. with our strength and power. They're gonna be like, uh, actually, let's just stick to the track. Uh, so. Yes. What, like, how long do you think it takes to sort of develop that change? So I've, I've seen fighters, it depends on where they're coming from. 
mm-hmm. you know, where, where their baseline is. But I've seen anything from the first four weeks with those that haven't been doing much at all, where they're just things really, really change. Just a, and that would be like a first block of training, which would be, you know, a, a strength block effectively with some concurrent power and speed in there as well. But they're more experienced people. I would say they really need to go through what I would call a training phase, which would be like a whole run through all of the qualities with a peak. And that's 12 to 16 weeks, depending Mm. on how much sort of fundamental Mm. work. Once you've done that, so sort of three to four months, at the end of that, it's like, whoa, I'm in a different place to where I started here. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's in a different place that doesn't slip back to the start. You've stepped up. And then with a like a rinse and repeat of your training, it then steps you up again over that next phase of training. So when I say a phase, I mean you're going through a strength block, a power block, and a speed block, which and that speed block would land with a, like a deload, which would be l- taking all the load right off in the final week before a fight, so that your fatigue diminishes and you you show all of the the actual shiny new fitness and and performance that you've built. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also makes sense why a lot of gyms haven't adapted or haven't made that change because 12 to 16 weeks is a very, very long time for a Thai Mm. camp. You know, that is basically three fights where you're trying to develop your skills specifically uh, while also sticking to this traditional program. Uh, You know, in the UK and other areas, there's not as many fights. So you can sort of spend that time building that phase would you agree with that and what are your thoughts on that yeah absolutely i'd agree agree with that and it's why like a strength and conditioning approach is easier for western fighters because there is less that there's a uh, the frequency of fighting is far less and the importance of a lot of the fights is far less because it's not your bread and butter your 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 income you know um when it comes to fighting in thailand it's well, when I'm structuring training, so even when I'm working, working with fighters online and we've got fight dates that come up and we're trying to put together a plan for, okay, how many weeks am I going to spend working on strength? How many weeks on power? How much am I on speed? Where do these finish so that I can have a peak performance? And we always decide with the fight, is it a really critical, important fight where everything needs to be optimized to make the best performance for that fight? Or is it more actually... I'm going to treat it more as a friendly fight where I'm just working through and actually my long-term progress is more important than the result of that one fight because it's not for rankings. It's, it's not for a title or whatever. Um, and then with, with an eye basically on being rather than being in the next four or eight weeks or whatever, the best I can be optimally, it's more like at the end of the year, I'm going to be in a place I couldn't even touch before. And that's really where my eye is on so that year on year I'm, becoming a, a more athletic animal that couldn't compete against myself because I've got higher levels of everything. And if you get stuck too much into the almost four week loop of fight, fight, mm-hmm. fight, and that's, you're just looking to get as best I can in four weeks again, you just end up going round in a circle of kind of getting tired, performing, and it's, you end up just trying to recover back to that same level of performance that you had before. You just kind of like, I'm just hoping I recover and I get back to where I was, perhaps with a few technical changes, but athletically, I'm kind of really the same. Or you're you're thinking, okay, in three months' time, that's where I'm going to be up a whole new level that I wouldn't be able to touch where I am. But it might be I've had three or four fights in that time as well. And the way the way I've managed that, each block of training. So if I say you've got like a a four week strength block, or a four weeks power block or speed block, each one of those has um, in the in the way I work it. Um, three weeks of loading and then one deload. So we kind of go like a low week, a medium week, a high week where we're really pushing stuff hard. And then we back off again before we move into the next block that follows that same structure. That deload week is the ideal opportunity to put a fight. Mm. So even if even if we're saying we're, we've got a fight coming up and I'm in a, a power block and not a speed block, the speed block would be ideal for the best performance because we're really making it specific. But let's say it's on a on a power block. If I adjust the week so the deload lands the week of the fight and I'm making weight for the fight and I, and I go and perform, that's still, that's still moving everything forward. It's still going to give you a fight peak. It's just not your absolute optimum 
because it's we're treating it more like a, a friendlier fight where we're not looking to to make it all everything's about the fight i'm actually looking for being better on the next four weeks for the next fight and we'll always try and organize the blocks of training in that way and it's it's never like in any of those training blocks you're never training any strength or never training any speed it's just like we haven't got the the more optimal amounts of those to really move those forwards the most for you so it's never like you've left dead in the water with nothing it's like we've we've got a performance where we can back off and show your real fitness when we deload you and then there's the really turn the screw up where we've optimized everything to deliver your absolute best and we we want to save that for the biggest fights and we also just want to have in mind that we only achieve that absolute pushing the level up on everything if we have a little bit more of a longer mindset than just the next fight yeah that makes sense um and i think it's hard for thai athletes to have that long-term approach uh basically a lot of it is the structure of the sport out here versus the structure of the sport in other areas uh talking a little bit about that how many how do you feel you've developed case studies for all of this uh, strength and conditioning you know knowledge that you've developed and how many do you have and what have you learned from different basically the case studies are different athletes yeah um to be honest i've got to do a much better job of putting that sort of information together i've, mm -hmm. I've, I've definitely found myself in the weeds of just getting stuck in and helping people and not really collecting together the information in a way that would probably I guess more market what's going on to, mm -hmm. to other people. It's it's certainly something I need to 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 get on with. But yeah, it's that one of the one of the really good aspects I have in that I get fighters to come in and do some uh, benchmark testing. So mm -hmm. in terms of there's there's like an athletic profile where we'll determine what their levels of strength, power, and speed are effectively with with some sort of rudimentary tests. And then we work through cycles of training and we retest them. And then we see how those levels have changed. Um, but also what's even more important than that is really the feedback from training partners and coaches. Mm -hmm. So um, I get lots of that where people are saying, for example, that they're, they're not getting tired anymore, you know, when they're on the pads, whereas their coach, their coach is noticing like, you know, what, you, what are you doing? You're, you're not fatiguing and blowing mm -hmm. out anymore. Um, and also, you know, just feedback like on the pads now, there's, there's more consistent power throughout the whole round or you're hitting harder than you were before. Uh, that That's the kind of stuff that's going on. So some of it's a bit subjective and, and mm -hmm. some of it is more objective. We've got some some measures for it too. Um, but yeah, I need to, I really ought to spend the time. You, you, you've kind of, you've highlighted something for me there, really. I need to put some stuff together and, and put that out. Yeah, because I do think it's important, you know, I think that if the sport is going to grow in diff different aspects, we all need case studies to look at. Uh, obviously, there is that anecdotal experience where, you know, oh, Don has been doing this strength and conditioning program. He hits harder now. You know, it's all those long walks on the beach. They're definitely doing yeah. him good. But, you know, the, the, a lot of the sport is, you know, anecdotal and it's not recorded and organized. Mm. Uh, so it makes it harder for uh, new people to understand why things are happening. And it also makes it harder to make those changes. Um, yeah. One of, you know, one of the athletes you recently worked with was uh, Rich Caden, correct? Yes, yes. Oh, who is yeah. uh, an older athlete uh, and basically had a comeback fight. Uh, he's yes. like 44 or something and a full-time uh, gym owner, but wanted to get back into the ring and fought someone about his own age. But uh, yes. you helped him out with his training program. Can you talk about that? Uh, and I would argue that this would be an example case study. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the the way the way that happened was, yeah, Rich, um, he he reached out to me. He was older. He was looking to get back into training, um, but he he was well aware that he was older and he was going to be in danger of actually breaking himself rather than making himself better. By the time he got to the fight, there's there's a limited capacity on everything, and you know it's it is one of those things. You haven't the last time you did this, you were younger and could tolerate a lot more. You now have to be kind of right with what you're doing and the progressive steps that you're making so that you don't tip over 
and, and fall over with that. And that was that was really how Rich approached me. He he was worried about overdoing it, and uh, <laughs> rightly so, because to start off with, he was he was out the gate, run, kind of effectively running too hard. You know, he was he was out going way too way too strong and everything, and it was still a long way from the fight. And it's that's a lot with fighters is pairing them back and saying, giving them permission to go when it's time to go. I mean, it's it's like pacing a fight, isn't it? You know, you can get it all wrong, go out way too quick. Um, and it's, it's exactly the same with the training. So with Rich, it was a case of um, I was working with him to work out that periodized plan. So it's where the focus was going to be in terms of strength, power and speed, pacing it properly with that. But then also with how he was training, because there were influences outside of what I was doing with him as well. There were, there were some local coaches working with him too. And we were just kind of marrying up how some of the stuff that he was being fed there would fit into a progressive plan to get him all the way to the finish line in peak condition rather than broken down condition. Um, and that was that was really how how that all worked together. And it was some video calls that we were working together and, and then discussing about how he should be progressing that training week by week um, and block by block to, to end up with uh, uh, fight-specific performance at the end of it and not just something general and not de definitely not something that was going to break him. And, uh, of course, he I know about it because he talked about it and what an improvement it made and he won his fight and what a big difference mm. uh, it had for him. Uh, you talked about it as a periodized plan. How long was the plan that you worked with him on was it this it was it a full 12 to 16 week cycle was yeah. it shorter it was it was just over 12 weeks actually mm -hmm. um there was there was a little bit of time beforehand where we, it was kind of settling down we were discussing what was going on but yeah he he had just over 12 weeks so for me as a coach that's ideal i mean often i hear from fighters you know i've got a fight in four weeks and i'm like I can help you peak what you've got now, but I can't really build too much more in that time because it is this long term, longer term thing. You need you need more months at it really to to get all those plates up. Um, but Rich, Richard reached out at just the right time. We had loads of time to to do some initial background tests for him, get him going, find the areas that were going to be his limiting factors in terms of uh, athletic performance. So with with the strength, power, and speed, and the endurance, all that kind of side of things, but also the mobility, those sort of areas, we tested for all of that, and given him some work to to actually get that that foundation, so that optimal performance pyramid I spoke about earlier, getting the movement and mobility right as well, because some of that wasn't quite there either, um, and all of that stuff doesn't just limit your performance. Of course, it's it's also like an injury risk if we if we just stack performance on top of some dysfunction there. Yeah, you're asking for trouble there as well. So we had plenty of time to actually build this up in the right way and not not get carried away with, I need to start hard and fast now. It's actually, I need to build the right blocks in the right order, set the foundation and trust that when I get to the end, I've got a really rock solid foundation that will tolerate me now really pushing and peaking at the right time. And that's that's the key. That makes sense. And I would probably assume that because Rich is older, he was thinking ahead about all these things. Whereas mm. a lot of athletes are younger, they're going to be more impatient. Um, they're going to know in theory that they need to develop, you know, their basic, you know, strength, power and speed, but they're only going to have, oh, I have this fight, so I should do it. How do you get athletes to convert that program and that mindset from okay, this short-term plan that's only four weeks to a longer-term, you know, 12 to 16-week cycle. Yeah, so that, for, for me, that's about educating the fighters about what really makes performance and how, once, you, once you've tested fighters as well for these different elements and separated them out, they can see that, okay, I'm good at this bit. Oh, I've dipped down in this bit. And they kind of see that that's going to need some effort to bring that up. And every, everyone's, everyone wants to score well, don't they, when they see these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of helps them see that. And especially if you can relate that particular aspect to an element of their, their Muay Thai game mm -hmm. and how that might be limiting them. And very often they're going, oh, yeah, yeah, that does happen. Mm -hmm. then, then you get some, some buy-in from them. But the, the main bit for me is then to educate them as to 
how we train for for that particular quality, how we can bring that dial up um, and how that relates to, to their Muay Thai. But, but more specifically, where in the training phase that element's the most important and where it's not. And then, then you get fighters going into each training block, knowing the purpose of that block, what that's going to contribute. And they're more interested now in, right, I'm going into this session. I'm not just going in just with this idea of I need to be better. They're going in, well, this session is, is going to increase my, my strength levels in the first place because that's performing poorly. And I know that... I've got a target of, say, for example, on a deadlift, I want to be able to hit 1.82 times my body weight, ideally. That's where I want to hit. That's going to give me a real rock-solid injury prevention. But also I know how that relates to punch and kick performance as well. That initial acceleration all comes from there. And I know I'm going to convert that into power and I'm going to convert that power into strength, uh, into speed. And that's where I'm going to see it come out in the wash in the fight. It's that... It's that training purpose in each session and not being, it's being focused on what that session is about. And each session has that specific purpose. And once they're educated with that, they, they start going in, the fighters go in and they're, they're looking to knock those, tick those off and, and know that they're nudging that dial up on, on that particular aspect. Awesome. And something that you've mentioned in your recent podcast is uh, talking about DOMS. And I think this is a little bit about injury and risk. Um, you know, in traditional bodybuilding, I'm actually doing more bodybuilding. Now you have, you get doms all the time. Um, mm. and it's, it's pretty annoying because, and this is one of the reasons why I was never a big proponent of strength and conditioning in the first place is because I would do some level of strength and conditioning. Then I would get doms and our delayed onset muscle soreness for those of you unfamiliar with the technical words, uh, but basically being sore from lifting weights or whatever. And I would be unable to perform or my performance dropped. So my, mm. when I was trying to develop my skill level, I was unable to. So how, and you talked about this in your podcast, but can you reiterate it a little bit? How do you, think that fighters should deal with this situation. Yeah, so like you you mentioned there, the bodybuilding approach to, to using resistance training is one of the main culprits. So that's that's not really training um, for athletic performance as such in Muay Thai because we're in weight categories and all the rest of it. There are times, like you've probably got at the moment, where you are looking to, to put some uh, functional muscle mass on. Um, and especially as you get older, that you need to start thinking about muscle loss as, as you get older as well. So there's that um, sarcopenia that you get as you get older and you want to keep keep some muscle mass on. But certainly for mo the majority of fighters, we're not looking for that. So in that case, you shouldn't be getting a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, anytime you expose the body to a, a new training stimulus, as we'd call it, so that's that's anything that's loaded more than you're typically used to, anything that goes through like a deeper range of motion than you're used to, and predominantly anything that's... Uh, and a higher volume as well. So if you suddenly increase the amount of something you're doing, that can make you sore. But it's the majority of it comes from what we'd call the eccentric muscle action. So it's the lowering of a weight or the lowering of your body. So, for example, if, if, I, if I go back to the example of a chin-up, because most people are familiar with how that looks and feels, the pulling your chin up to the bar isn't the bit that makes your muscles sore. It's the lowering down again. That's the bit that creates mechanical damage in the in the muscles themselves. That's the bit that's going to end up with inflammation as a result. And that's the bit that's going to make you painful, especially that kind of 48 hours later is when it tends to peak and you can't move that well. So with the training, what we're looking to do is control the introduction of any activity with the load so that it's not going to make you ever so sore. Anytime you get something that's brand new and you've not seen it before, you could get a bit sore and we'd expect to see that. But once you've, once you've had that initial exposure to it, you shouldn't be getting sore all the time. If you are, then your programming's wrong. You're not progressing the training correctly. So as long as you increase the, the load in a progressive way, the, the volume, the amount of it that you're doing in a progressive way, you're not overdoing the eccentric lowering bits of a, of a movement all the time. Fighters don't get sore, but you can really overload them and not get sore. And that's, that's one of the, the things I think that's, that's one of the, the, the feedback elements I get from, from people that have been using the, 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 the real 
training programs is that they don't get sore and it's not impacting their the Muay Thai training. So it, it's always about minimum dose. That's the thing. It's what's the minimum amount of work that I can do to create the improvement in fitness or athletic qualities that I, I need and then leave it alone. There's no point overdoing it. All that does is it kind of, it gives you less room to grow in the long term. So your body will adapt to a certain stimulus that you give it by a certain percentage. And it doesn't matter if you overstep that mark by a mile or you literally just took one step over it. Your body adapts the same amount. So we don't want you prematurely hitting that, that glass ceiling by doing too much. And it's just being progressive with the training um, and thinking about what's coming up in the next block of training that could make people sore and giving them some work in the existing block that's going to prepare their body to that exposure when you do start loading it properly. And once you've done that, people don't don't continuously get sore anymore. That's good. Uh, so, you know, I guess the TLDR is do chin ups, not chin down. <laughs> <laughs> that's what do makes you, know what? you sore. So just go yeah, up. Don't it, don't go down. That's it. <laughs> it's um it's it's don't lower slowly yeah. there's a there's a time and a place to do that actually it was another post i put um was on the deadlift form so you can you can do a deadlift where you're you're you've got a barbell on the floor and you you stand up with it you're standing up with the with the weight and you can either choose to lower that weight really slowly down to the floor mm -hmm. again with real control or you could the the opposite extreme is just to drop it drop. if you've got bumper plates then get back down lift it again mm. um and the point i was making with that because a lot of people are saying is it what's the best way to do it is it to lower slowly and control um, and build that there or is it to actually drop it from the top or somewhere in between and and i've i've always said as fighters unless i'm looking for some sort of injury prevention specifically with all the muscles down the the back of the of the legs the hamstrings and glutes that kind of stuff where longer slower eccentric lowering is going to be helpful for that for most fighters i'm i'm saying lift it up uh with with uh with as much speed as you can with good form and then just drop it at the top you know that that's going to make you less sore if you're not getting sore by lowering it slowly then that's fine but you're more likely to get sore by lowering it slowly so it's, it's just bearing in mind where in the program you're doing this kind of stuff and if you're if you're really emphasizing a slow lower on something Bear in mind, you're probably going to make that those active muscle groups sore. That makes sense. Uh, I want to change gears a little bit and talk about some of the business side and marketing aspects uh, because I do think that it's important and it is obviously something you're involved in uh, because you have developed online material to sell. Uh, you have the podcast and you're active on social media. Uh, can you talk about each of those different facets and why they're important? So specifically uh, developing these online materials and then we'll go over the podcast and uh, social media activity. Yeah, so the the online side of it is, it's literally because I only had so much capacity face-to-face -face with people. Mm -hmm. Very quickly run out of hours. I also, there's only so many people into Muay Thai to the to the extent that I am in my my local area and I'm a family man I'm not prepared to kind of be moving around too much uh, and spending too much time away from the family so um the online side of it was was something I thought I need to develop something here it's also just the fact that as soon as I started just posting information online you start getting contacted from mm -hmm. people all around the world and it was like different time zones all this kind of stuff and I'm like how can I actually help some of these people that are reaching out with questions and um, it was like, I need to deliver what I do in person as best I can online. And that, that was, that became my like engineering project. If you like, it's like, how can I do this? How can I, how can I make this work? And that's, that's what I, I went away and did and sort of built and optimized over time, worked on the areas that didn't work so well and fine tuned it. And, um, was really surprised actually with, with a level of automation I managed to build in there. It's almost like my, my online coaching portal is like my a training assistant it manages all the what everyone's doing it gives me the feedback that i need it gives me the opportunity to speak them more directly if i need to um but that then getting the feedback with because I, I it's like without eyes on people how effective is this really going to be and the the results have been really good so um if people are actually doing the work and and working through the program they're getting great results the feedback's been really good the fight performances have been good Injuries have been reduced or completely eliminated, all that kind of stuff. So 
that gave me the, I'm going to keep this going. And it's not like something that I tested. It didn't work. I couldn't do it. It's like it's, it's got better and better as time's gone on. So that was that was really the the idea behind delivering something online. It was to reach the people that wanted it. And on their terms, 24 hours, wherever, whatever works for them in their part of the world. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's something that, that worked out pretty well. So I've forgotten what, the, what else you were asking. Yeah, so th- uh, I wanted to ask about them anyways because it's a little easier to touch on them. So next, let's talk about uh, the podcast, obviously. Mm. Uh, for those of you out there in internet land, uh, Don has a very <laughs> nice uh, setup that we were talking about uh, pre-show. Um, so you have the podcast. Uh, you also mm. are developing your YouTube channel. Can you talk about the production of that, why you chose to do it, um, what results you've seen? Because... While Muay Thai is growing, I feel like some aspects of the media side are still stagnant or aren't necessarily growing at the same uh, speed as, say, some of the promotions or some of the athletes' careers. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, the uh, I guess the, the YouTube and the social media is really all a product of trying to answer questions that I've been getting all the time. Um it's it's difficult to ask answer some of these questions because they're so specific and there's so much well it depends <laughs> so I've, I've been trying to create content that allows people to dip in and find what's relevant for them and the the youtube channel i think has been with that sort of longer form allows me to answer questions in a in more thorough detail that gives some someone something that's that's meaningful at the end rather than it depends all the time because that, in all, in all honesty that's that's often what the the answer is because you you can't give one solution for for everybody because it just won't work it it really does depend on where you're coming at it from and what your background is and and where you're at um so the the youtube channel was something i started first um again not really knowing what the hell i was doing i was just putting some stuff out there because it just seemed to answer some questions for people um i then started posting some things on social media as well. And as those kind of those channels have grown as well, again, I'm not an expert on any of that stuff. Just just found it was people reaching out to me on there and it was a way to to get some answers back to people. And of course, the byproduct was that a lot of people be based on the answer that I gave would be like, actually, I want to go deep on this now. I, I could give them so much in an answer and they'd want to go deep. They'd want it solved for them. And then they would come and get one of the programs. So it's like, well, th- this is a great way of working. It's, it's, uh, it's helped me understand what the problems are the fighters have got because they're reaching out to me and asking me because, you know, my, my place in the world is different to them. And I'm trying to understand where they're coming from, um, what their issues are, forever trying to update that. Also, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and my, my viewpoints are different as well. My, it's that whole thing with a level of expertise changes your viewpoint as well because you think stuff's obvious and it's like, oh, it's not. It is to me because I've been looking at it for so long <laughs> and I did have that question a long time ago. Um, so it helps me kind of cycle around and, and um, push out something that's going to help people again. Um, but it, it has all ended up, as with everything, I guess, these days, it, it's, it's all part of a marketing cycle as well in that people always want more from you and there's a point you can't give them more because you've got no time left and at least I've got some solutions then if they if they really want to go into it it naturally falls into what I've got online so I I feel I I've always wanted to give stuff away free as much as I can do as well I mean if I didn't have to earn from it that's all I would do but it's Mm -hmm. like I've I've got the family and the and the and the the house to keep over people's head uh, our heads as well so um having having that sort of cycle that works through and I can give people what they want and as the whole paying for it as well it turns up the results I've definitely definitely found that it's like if if people pay they pay attention rather mm. than half-assing it and if they if they're half-assing it doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that it spoils that recipe you don't end up with delivering that meal that you intended it's all gone a bit wrong because they added a bit too much of this they still kept that in there but when when people have actually invested in it it's not just their time they're investing it's if they've spent on it they tend to do what they're they're supposed to do and that's when they really get the results 
Yeah, I think that's a great line uh, that I've heard from other people. If people pay, they pay attention. And I think, you know, social media is great and there's a lot of information you can give people and that they can learn free. Uh, But eventually, I think that people need to pay for further education and continuing education because if they're really invested, they're not just going to get things for free. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a level of uh, just speed and learning that is going to take too long if you don't just pay for it. You know, like I can become a, you know, a, a rocket scientist by going to the library every day for the next 10 years, or I can just pay to go to a rocket scientist course. Um, and that yeah. will probably get me to the moon a lot faster. Yeah, and I've I've definitely been guilty of that on so many different aspects as well. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll just I'll figure this out myself. And it's mm. it's always that eighty twenty rule, and it applies to the training I deliver to other people. You know, it's it, you need to point people at that priority twenty percent that gets eighty percent of the result. And if you're spending too long on the other the you know the the other aspects there, you're, you're wasting time, and you you don't get as far forward or even reach the the point that you even intended intended to in the first place. Awesome. Well, with that, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or topics you wanted to cover before we wrap things up? No, I don't think so. Other than just to to help fighters understand that there are a lot of different aspects to your training, but you don't need to do it all at the same time. That's the thing. That That's a recipe for confusing your body as to what the hell it's adapting to and it it just ends up fatigued and you don't end up better so it's just choosing choosing your battles and uh targeting your training progressively as you go along and not feeling like you have to do everything all the time it's dialing things up and down as you progress through it's just getting that order right um and if people do want some help with that loads of free resources on my website to help you understand which bits are relevant where um, over at heatrick.com. So there's loads of stuff on there and the YouTube channel, dig into that and uh, yeah, reach out so I can help out a bit more specifically, potentially as well. If you've got some 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 questions that relate exactly to your, your situation, I'm, I'm more than happy to help with that. Awesome. Thank you so much. And can you once again, just plug uh, where people can find you? You said the website, uh, www.donheatrick.com, correct? It's just heatrick. Oh, heatrick. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's h e a t r i c k dot com, and and you'll find everything from there. But uh, I'm trying to remember what my uh, I think it's uh, Heatrick Muay Thai Performance is the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. But basically, if you just type in Don Heatrick D O N Heatrick uh, on Google, I'll pretty much come up everywhere because I've just got one of those weird names that no one's got. <laughs> so that was lucky. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Don. I really appreciate it and. Look forward to seeing more content from you and uh, hopefully more success as well. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the time as well, mate. That was a great interview with Don. You know, he really dived into issues of dialing up the intensity of strengthening, strength and conditioning, dialing it back. He talked about that three-week sort of load on program, the one week load off, and about having this full cycle of 12 to 16 weeks of rebuilding your body. I think it was a great point that he has uh, benchmark testing. You know, something we hit on was that he didn't feel he had enough case studies, but I do feel like even doing these benchmark tests and then reevaluating them are case studies themselves. We talked about Rich Caden as well, who's an older fighter who did very well in his fight. And of course, the marketing aspect, which I think is so important and overlooked a lot of times. So this was a great interview. I look forward to reading and learning more about Heatrick and his system. Uh, I will probably look into one of his strength and conditioning programs as well. If you were interested in this, you would probably be interested in my book, I'm Fighting in Thailand. It's a guide 
uh, to the sport in the motherland. It helps educate and guide careers by helping save fighters from costly mistakes. You can pick up your copy off of Amazon. Thanks as always to Patrick Rivera for helping get this show started. This has been On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people.